it can be hard to ask those questions about how do you bill and what's your policy for communicating with your clients. Those can be kind of hard because you kind of like just want to assume you don't want to insult their professionalism. Mm -hmm. But I would say no. It's your money. If you're, they're going to be asking for a retainer. You should know those things. And you, you know, you might not always get a useful answer to that question that actually helps you get a sense for what it's going to be like. Unfortunately, sometimes the only way to find out is through experience. But it, it's definitely something to ask. And if, if they have a system in place for making sure clients get information in a timely way, they will happily talk about it. to justice. I'm your co-host Heather Malarick from Merrick Law and I'm joined today by my other co-host Evan Clark from Kahane Law and our very special guest Kim McDonald. Hi Kim, how are you? Heather, you know what? Today's been an interesting day for me. Oh, tell me about that. Well, I, I don't know if I'm going to feel totally composed for today because I was just in a hot uh, chicken wing eating event and um, <laughs> I'm still suffering <laughs> through the pain right now. So I'm going to do my best today, but I didn't align my schedule very well today. Okay. So if you need a break to pat your brow or uh, get might, some milk. <laughs> yeah, I might have to drink a little bit of water. So It's, it's good, Kim. It helps you know you're alive. <laughs> right. Pain yeah. is good. Yeah, I agree. Uh, how are you doing, Evan? What did you, what what were you eating right before our episode today? <laughs> I well, I had yogurt for lunch. Oh. Very tasty. Uh huh. Uh huh. With some with some nuts. It's a sensible lunch. Yeah, it sounds good. It sounds good. Kim needs a little bit of that to cool her palate. <laughs> Need a little bit more balance in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the good news for today is I think Evan and I are going to be on the hot seat because today's topic is how to shop for a lawyer. Um, and I think, um, Kim, you actually mentioned that you had a bunch of questions for us that um, folks often come to you asking what they should be looking for when they're looking for a lawyer. So um, maybe do you want to take it away and and uh, and you can grill Evan and I on on what people are looking for. That sounds great. Uh, just uh, for our new listeners, and if they're wondering why I'm a guest participant in this program, I, again, my name is Kim McDonald. I'm a financial advisor and insurance advisor uh, with McDonald Advisory of Raymond James LTD. And uh, the reason I'm, I'm part of this program is because there's a lot I don't know about the law. And um, I have a lot of questions for Heather and Evan, and I might be, um, I might have just a, a different take than a lawyer who's been practicing for a long time. So today's topic to me was, is great. I am really excited to ask you guys all these questions because people contact me very, very frequently. Every single week, somebody's asking me about divorce process, about how to find a lawyer, all this kind of stuff. I know some stuff. I do not know everything, and I'm ready to hit you guys with lots and lots of questions. So um, I think maybe first I'll sort of chip away at the, the different types of divorce. So we know that there's mediation. We know there's collaborative law. We know there is uh, mediation, arbitration. There is litigation, and there's the do-it-yourself model. And I think, am I, is that kind of most of them, you guys? Yeah, I think that's, that's, uh, yeah, I think that's the spectrum, Kim. So then we potentially have different people. We have to pick for different processes. So Heather, my question, my first question to you is if people are doing something the do it yourself model. So I think Evan described it in our, in our last podcast as the kitchen table model. Uh -huh. Where are people finding the lawyers at the end of their do-it-yourself model to sign off on the 
agreement? And do people, are people drafting their own agreements? Like who are these lawyers that are just coming in at the very end of this process and not working through questions? So that's my, that's my first question to you, Heather. Hmm. That's a really good question, Kim. Um, I guess it's kind of funny. That's a hard question because I always, I guess I'm often at the end of that journey. So I'm not always aware where people find me, but I think people at that point are probably looking um, for what's called ILA in the business or independent legal advice. So they're looking for someone to sign, to give them legal advice on those agreements and sign off on it. So maybe they're searching for that. Um, I guess it depends how they got their agreement. Maybe they're using a mediator or they're using um, um, uh, one of those packages that you can buy at the car registry, that kind of thing, and then doing a Google search. So I guess the answer is it could be any family lawyer, really any lawyer that signs off on that. So Evan, if I called you, I was getting divorced and I was doing it myself with my husband and I called you up and said, I've got the whole thing done. I need you to read this crappy agreement that I put together. Is that something that you're going to be interested in doing? Or is there certain lawyers that are going to be more attracted to those, to, to that part of the process? Uh, if you drafted the agreement yourself, <laughs> um, I'm not going to probably provide independent legal advice for that. I mean, if I did, mm -hmm. my advice would probably probably be don't sign it. Yeah. Or if you do sign it, it doesn't matter because it's not, there, there's very, there's technical things that boxes that need to be checked for a separation agreement where there's property and spousal support involved. Um, so do I have that wrong then? somebody doing it the do-it-yourself way wouldn't draft their own agreement. They would just come up with decisions. They would come to you. You would do up the agreement. And, and, and that would be something you'd be willing to sign off on, I guess. I think the most efficient way to go about this type of a thing is, um, like if you're gonna, if, if the couple are more or less amicable and they, they're feeling confident they can come to an agreement on their own, the best thing is for one of them to go have an initial consultation with the family lawyer and just get some advice about their situation and general advice about family law and the, and how the law applies and, and this type of thing that will kind of give them a context to come to an agreement and then once they have like once they're agreed on the various things they don't have to write up any special document they can just say okay this is what we're agreeing and then the lawyer takes care of all the technical stuff because a separation agreement um which can go under many different names um but it's a it's a fairly technical document and so um, yeah, it would be difficult for, I, I've even seen, um, where a paralegal has offered the service of drafting the document for people and it was not really not quite suitable. I had to make some, I had to make some adjustments myself, which ended up costing the client additional money to what they'd already paid the paralegal. And, uh, even then it was less than ideal. And this isn't like, I'm not trying to slag on paralegals that are trying to help people um, get access to justice. It's just that type of agreement is a pretty technical document. So Heather, in, in I think it was our very first podcast we did, you mentioned that there are mediators who are not lawyers. And, and you mentioned that maybe that could pose some problems down the road, or maybe lawyers would have an opinion on non-lawyer mediators working through a divorce. If we have a non-lawyer mediator working through a divorce, then they would have to pass that off to a lawyer at the end, correct? Like they would not have any knowledge of drafting these agreements. And is that why you thought that a mediator who is also a lawyer is better at that particular job? There's no rule about that. A mediator doesn't need to be a lawyer, but there's a lot of things that need to, as Evan alluded to, that need to go into a legally binding and enforceable family law contract. So, I personally think if you want to make the most of your time and money, it's probably to your benefit to hire a lawyer, a mediator who's also a trained family lawyer, because they're just cognizant of uh, all of the 
things that need to go into an agreement to make it enforceable. Uh, and you're going to, sh- you're going to sh- shortcut some of the thing, some of the issues that might come up. So, um, Hopefully, they're going to be cognizant of tax implications of certain things, um, why a divorce judgment might not go through at the end because your agreement doesn't address X, Y, and Z, um, such as arrangements for the kids, um, both financial and parenting that judges like to see. Um, I said taxes already, but there's just sort of a myriad of, of things that um, that can be missed or become complicated. So you might sit, you might go through the mediation process, have an agreement that you think is good, but then when you take it to lawyers, the lawyers are going to end up redrafting it or sending you back to mediation. So it becomes a little, becomes inefficient um, for sure to hire someone who doesn't have that specific family law knowledge. And if we are shopping for that person, Evan, I, I'm curious to hear what you have to say on this. If I'm, if somebody's been practicing for mediation for pretty much their, like that's the entirety of their practice and they're a lawyer, do they lose their their lawyer skills over time? Well, they're not allowed to. They have an ethical <laughs> obligation to not lose those skills. And I guess the skills that they need, like the reason that we're talking about having a lawyer mediator is uh, working knowledge of the law and the, you know familiarity with with those types of agreements and what's in use in practice. So if they're, I don't know that any lawyer fits this bill, but they certainly could, where they're just doing mediation now or mediation and arbitration and, and no longer doing much else, uh, that wouldn't be a concern for me. Probably um, they're going to be good at that, <laughs> I would think. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. worry about, um, you know, their drafting skills. Uh, they're going to be, they're going to be good. I, I mean, I can't say that just blind. Like not all lawyers are exactly the same, but I think in general, if you're looking to come away with an agreement after mediation that is going to be able to be signed in front of lawyers and and then you're done, I think the best, most economical bet is to have uh, a mediator that is a lawyer. It's kind of it's like what Heather said. It's a false economy. If you're saving money on the mediator, um, and then they draft the agreement for you. And then you take that agreement to a lawyer and the lawyer's like, well, I need to change this, this, and this. And then you're going to pay the lawyer for that, which, um, yeah, and a lot, a lot of times it's just better if they start with their own documents that they're familiar with, their own precedents. Mm-hmm. And in some really unfortunate cases where one issue is connected to another, is connected to another, once you pick out one issue, then the whole thing starts unraveling and that's where real frustration can set in because you think you've crossed off all the topics and you end up going back and rewriting the book and that's frustrating and that's expensive. And I, I think it's uh, important to note that um, I'm not, a, I don't, I'm not a mediator, so I'm not like, uh, I don't really have a horse in the race, so to speak. Uh-huh. It's just that, and Heather, do you do mediation? I'm trained as a mediator, but it's, it's, I have done zero mediations. So yeah, I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not speaking from trying to get clients into my office. That's, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. We don't, we're, we're not saying this to say like, Hey, you need to hire us because because we're, I think our perspective here is just when we get an agreement on our desks and it was written by a lawyer on the other side, it's, it's been consistently of much higher quality and much more suitable mm-hmm. than agreements that have come from non-lawyers trying to accomplish the same thing. Yeah. I remember, so everybody will remember from our first episode where Heather and I mentioned that we met each other in a mediation course. So I think it was 40 hours of us together uh, doing mediation. And I, I thought it was something that I learned right off the bat, which I didn't know about before, was that lawyers who are practicing as mediators, they would always talk about taking off their lawyer hat 
And many of them expressed that that was challenging. So when you guys are talking today, it makes me think that that mediators who are lawyers are are special in a sense, like they are able to work in that environment and and know the law, but but not always include the law in their conversations. Have, have, is that sort of correct, Heather? Is that, do I have the right take on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting observation because as lawyers, when we're hired for one party, we have a duty to be strident advocates for them and to do our best to represent um, their rights and to pursue their instructions and um, get a good outcome for them. Um, and it can be difficult for um for us to switch from that advocacy mode to that neutral mode, um, especially when we're talking about topics that we're used to being advocates about. Um, I mean, the way I think about it, though, is that there are always two sides to every issue. And I think I've probably sat on both sides of the table for all of those issues. I don't know how you feel about that, Evan, but I've been the one who's applied for spousal support and been the one uh, acting for the party that would prefer not to pay it or would rather lower their payments. I've been on the side of all of the parenting um, issues on both sides. So as much as it can sometimes be hard to put that aside, um, I think when I think of it that way, that it's a little bit easier um, to conceptualize that someone could remain neutral in that in that kind of situation because they have experience um, on, on both sides of the table, I guess, or helping people on both sides of the table. So in every style of divorce, lawyers are true lawyers acting as lawyers. And in mediation, they're not acting as lawyers until they draft the agreement. Is this correct? And then the lawyer hats back on and then people get their independent legal counsel or independent um, legal advice and off they go. Is that, is that correct? Well, and I'd say that sorry, mediators vary in their practice on whether or not they draft the agreement themselves or whether they, they give a report to either the parties or their lawyers to draft the agreement. But I'd say even when the mediator is drafting the agreement, they're using their legal knowledge but they're not drafting it as a lawyer because they're not, they're still not acting for one party or another. So they're saying, I know this about the law. I know this needs to be addressed and I'm putting into this agreement what I heard the parties agree about this topic. Um, that's why it's important to go and get legal independent legal advice from lawyers number two and three on each end of the agreement, because those people are the ones that are going to be on the client side and looking at it from the client's perspective, that client's perspective and saying whether that's fair or correct or. Okay. So this is interesting. The, the like there are, clear people that we are potentially looking for. And I'm thinking about the chicken and the egg situation here. Do we get a lawyer and figure out what process we're supposed to pursue when we meet with that first lawyer? Or are we supposed first to, first supposed to figure out what process we think is right for us? And then we go seek out the lawyer, or the mediator. Where do you guys think people should start? Should they have a working knowledge of a process first or should they just reach out to somebody and just start asking questions? Evan. Well, I, I think like educating yourself is always a good thing. Um, I certainly don't want to have the monopoly on, you know, understanding of the, of the family legal process. I, I'd be delighted if all my clients um, were very familiar with it. So uh, education is great. Um, that being said, it, a lawyer can really help with like focusing that um, that scope of what you what you need to learn about, and they can really like in a forty five minute meeting. I can review all the most of the times I can review the situation, explain the law, and how it applies to their situation in a succinct way that helps them. That's easy to understand. And that allows them to kind of like, you know, relax a little bit because one of the biggest challenges that I face when I'm, you know, 
in a similar situation is you don't know what you don't know. And so that can always be a, a, a source of stress because you're like, what am I missing? I could be missing something. I think I get it, but what about this other thing that I don't even know about? Mm-hmm. And so an initial consultation with a lawyer, I think, is rarely a waste. It's normally money well spent, especially like early in the in the process because they can they can help explain what kind of options are feasible for your situation. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think a good place to start. And also like if you do an initial consultation with me, I'm sure it's the same for Heather and most lawyers, we're not locked into a relationship. You can, you can ditch me afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there, it can just be that transaction and that can be it. Um, it can also, and it often does lead to, you know, me doing more work for my clients, but I've definitely had initial consultations where it really was kind of an informative session for the client where they, they learned more about the process. They learned about, um, what's most applicable to them and kind of the options for moving forward. I think there's really good value there, uh, cause you're talking about a few hundred dollars, but now you've got a good idea of what to do next. And yeah, so I, I, I recommend, yeah, read all you can on, on, uh, the internet, YouTube, and you're going to get great value from having an initial consultation with a lawyer as well. And now they can listen to our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So, so when people are looking for financial advisors, I know generally people come to us by way of a referral. When we're looking for doctors, we go to either rate MD or the college of physicians and start trying to figure out how to find our doctor who's actually accepting patients. Our, I think it was alluded to in one of our previous podcasts, family lawyers are very, very busy in high demand. How do we know who's accepting patients, so to speak? And, you know, are we going to make 40 calls and just keep getting rejected? What is the first step if you don't know a lawyer and all you've got is Google in front of you? Um, I, I mean, I, I would ask around to people that I know for referrals. Um, uh, hiring a lawyer is a professional relationship, but it is a relationship. So um, I think it is important that you kind of can suss out who you might work well with. Um, but there's a lot of other factors that go into it as well. But certainly word of mouth from someone you trust um, can be a good place to start. My personal view of any reviews online is, uh, I think it's a little dismal because I think it's either going to be people that are very happy um, and will make the effort to go and post a review. So maybe really great reviews are indicative of someone who's good. Um, But I think dismal reviews are often not reflective of that person or place or business's skills or lack thereof. I mean, unless they've got hundreds of consistently poor ratings, um, I don't think they're reflective. And I think particularly in law where the lawyer is not in control of the outcome of a case, but that's often the yardstick by which we are judged. So that can be difficult. So I'd say, you know, look at online reviews with a grain of salt. Um, um, you could start with a Google search, um, but I think looking, yeah, I, I don't know. That is, it's a little bit of a circle. It's a, uh, that's a hard question to answer. It's a good one though, Kim. What do you think, Evan? Where would you start if you had to start that search? Well, so Kim's question was, uh, how do you know what lawyers are even taking? Right. Oh goodness. I wandered, I wandered no. right away. Didn't I? <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think that you you answered the next question. Sometimes we do that as lawyers. You're like, what's the question you wanted? You what are you really, what are you really asking me, Cam? <laughs> I think, and, and I think most lawyers are always taking clients. It's just maybe they can't take you if you want an appointment tomorrow or next week. Oh, that's a good right? point. As lawyers get busier, then you may have to wait a couple weeks to to get an appointment with them. Sometimes urgency dictates who you end up hiring. It's like um, sometimes I can take something that's that's urgent. And so I'm probably the only lawyer that can take it. If a lawyer can take something urgently, they're probably the only one. Um, 
because most of the time I can't take things that are like, oh, I need something in two days. Yeah. Um, so sometimes that's kind of what happens. But I think, I think most lawyers are not saying to clients, I'm not taking any new clients. It's not like doctors that way. So I think if you get a good referral for a lawyer that, that you're interested in, in looking into, um, a lot of times it might be worth the wait to kind of to wait and go see them. Okay. And to kind of get to what Heather was driving at, uh, we as lawyers do not create the facts. And uh, that's what she was kind of getting at, where it's like, we can't control the outcome. We can't, we, we have no input on the facts. That's all the client or the client's partner or whatever. So um, we do what, the best that we can with what's given to us from the client. And sometimes there's just, you know, sometimes people are going to be unhappy. So I'd agree about like reviews. Ah, that's tough. I think uh, this, it's a tough question to know, like, okay, once you get in front of a lawyer, how do you know what lawyer to hire? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I have a great answer for that, but I think, I think a lot can go to meeting the lawyer, getting a sense for their personality and their approach. Um, but, I mean, I know a lot of lawyers in law school. I felt like the, the dumbest one in the room. Everyone was so smart. So I don't think, I really don't think it's a concern that you're going to get a dumb lawyer. I just, mm-hmm. for the most part, I, they all seem very smart to me. I think, I think the, uh, the bigger concern is just going to be, are they experienced in this area? But again, it's not like they have to be 20 years doing it. It's like, is this a brand new area of practice for them or not? As opposed to, do they have 20 years doing this or not? Um, and is their approach, does that work with my philosophy and how I feel about things? Because the lawyers, we do have different approaches to, to how we go about things mm-hmm. um, and philosophies for how we, we handle disputes. Some people are more prone to push the file into court. Others are more prone to avoid court and try and try and get something done outside of court. And so, um, yeah, and that can be difficult to find out without going to see the lawyer first, or at least having a phone call with them. But even then, it's it's uh, it's tough. And so I think one of the keys is what Heather said: talk to your friends, talk to get a referral from somebody, um, somebody that's just had a great experience with their lawyer. That doesn't guarantee you're going to have a great experience, but it's at least somebody who had a great experience with them. Yeah. And it's one of the factors that you do get to control, I guess, in that whole, in the whole process, because you can't control the other party. You can't control the other lawyer. Um, you're not the decision maker. If, it, if a decision needs to get made, um, you have control of the choice of your lawyer, at least, and hopefully their approach aligns with yours. So I'd love for you guys to correct me if I have this part wrong. Uh My understanding is that there are many more divorce cases that are litigated than who go through alternative dispute resolution. But maybe I'm not right on that. And with that, is that because that's kind of been the more typical route to divorce and there's less lawyers participating in that alternative dispute resolution, that ADR process. So I'm, I'm, what I'm leading you towards is do lo- lawyers have a bias when, they, when somebody comes into their office to, to, to coach them into a sp- certain route that they are a specialist in? So maybe both of you can comment on that. I certainly have a bias, but it's not about like what, um, my bias is not based on my feelings per se, my bias is based on what I've experienced being the best route to success and what I think success looks like. My bias is strongly against litigation personally. Um, but uh, you know, litigating is part of what you do as a family lawyer. And so I do it, but, um, that's kind of, um, that's the last, that's the, that's the, the last resort. Um, in my opinion, it should be because um, 
outcomes that are negotiated are generally just better. People are happier. They get to participate in the process. And even arbitration, where there's a third party making the decision, neither of, you know, it's where you can't work it out, but someone needs to make a decision for the parties. At least in arbitration, um, the, the parties get to say whatever they need to say. They get to be heard. And then the arbitrator makes a decision. Whereas at court, as we mentioned before, you don't, you don't really get to participate. You participate vicariously through your lawyer and then the decision gets made for you. So I, I'm definitely biased and I'm biased towards, um, you know, helping people get something done the most efficiently and most effectively. And the reason that is that that may be less lucrative for me as a professional, I, I would make more money if all of my files went to court, but, um, that I don't, I don't really believe that's true. I think, um, I get better clients, happier clients, and that leads to better business for me, um, having happy clients. Um, and I, I think through negotiation and other ADR uh, tools, they're much more likely to be happy in the end as opposed to going to court. So I don't know to, to answer your question if like most divorces go through litigation. I don't know that that's true or not. I suspect it's not. Um, and in Edmonton, I, I think we are starting to move more towards um, alternative dispute resolution. And I think in Calgary, they already are more doing that more than we are up in Edmonton. Right, what do you think, Heather? Yeah, I, I can't point to a source, but I, I definitely think that most divorces don't end up, um, at least not in full litigation, in a full-blown trial to decide everything. Um, here and there, you might be relying on the court for an answer to a question, but I'd say most divorces are really largely happening in lawyers' offices or in those ADR processes. Um, I, I guess, interestingly, under the new Divorce Act, lawyers are now duty bound to let our clients know and encourage them to use uh, ADR processes to resolve their matters unless it's clearly inappropriate to do so. So um, some of those, I, I guess I'm guessing the circumstances where it wouldn't be appropriate to do so might be in situations of family violence or where something really needs to be decided quite urgently. So there's not the time or perhaps resources to use ADR. Um, but that is, uh, that's a strong message from the government, I guess, and from the courts that they want family matters to be resolved outside of the courtroom and a strong message to lawyers as well. So I guess an answer to your question, you want, yeah, knowledge is power. It's good to know about all the different processes so that you can go in and ask your potential lawyer and try and figure out where their skill set is. So most lawyers are going to have a broad range of skill set, um, but maybe you start digging a little deeper in the range where you think you might end up. So I have a, a, a question from a, a non-lawyer here. And this might sound silly, but I don't know the answer. ADR, I know, is mediation and collaborative. Can somebody go to a lawyer who is a litigator and it still be ADR without it going to court? Great question. Yes, Kim. Mm -hmm. Yes. So ADR just stands for alternative dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. And that's really referring to an alternative to court. That's really what it is. So, when you're doing represented negotiation, so where one or more lawyers are involved representing the parties, then that is really alternative dispute resolution. Um, and often those will move to a, what we call a four-way meeting where it's um, party and their lawyer, party and their lawyer in the room at the same time or by Zoom these days, mm -hmm. um, hashing things out. That's alternative dispute resolution in, in process. So yeah, it really, it can take any shape of resolving the dispute outside of court. Okay. So I think lawyers are intimidating, or at least I did before I got to know a lot of lawyers. <laughs> and um, I, I think if I was to start this process, I would probably 
maybe poke around on, on the bar association website, seeing if there was like a, you know, sort by city, who is accepting, how many years have they been in practice potentially, and then try and start to narrow it down. Maybe I would be gender specific on my request. I don't know. Um, my question is going to pivot here, and I'm going to ask you to if genders or generations have a tendency to follow a certain path to divorce. Um, that is a thought-provoking question, Ken. Yeah, Heather, if you don't mind, I, I think what, um, I don't know that I've noticed a preference like uh, a certain gender, like male or female, trending more towards court or not. Um, and certainly that's like a, that's like a landmine trying to talk about, <laughs> certainly me talking about female preferences about anything uh, is certainly not something I want to speculate on. But I would say, um, and age also, I don't know that I, that I've noticed a correlation between younger people doing something, middle-aged or older people doing another thing. Um, for the most part, my, my clients are influenced by what I advise them to do. And if there's like a fundamental disagreement about my advice or like they just don't agree with my advice, then they're gonna go get a different lawyer. So my clients generally, we're on the same page. And so that's a tendency away from court. Um, so, but I've definitely have had people call and say, there is a female lawyer on the other side, I'm looking for a male lawyer or vice versa. I'm not, and I'm not sure why exactly, mm. but I've definitely had clients make that request. Like they want someone of the opposite gender going up against this person for some reason. Huh. That's interesting. Um, I've been asked by uh, clients or potential clients um, if they felt that whether I had any biases being a female towards one side or the other, um, as far as child support went, spousal support, that kind of thing. So I thought that was interesting. I think only I've been asked that twice, actually. And I mean, I guess I would encourage, I agree with Evan, first of all. I don't think there actually are any patterns. I think people are people and people have different skill sets and attitudes and tendencies. So that's not going to go by gender. But um if it's a concern, then ask about it early on. If you feel like that's something that will um, stick in your brain and be a worry for you um, so that it can be addressed. Yeah, I've definitely had people say like, oh, I need a real bulldog. And actually, the ones that say that are usually male. So I don't know. I don't know if that's mm. uh, gender related or, or it's just so happens that they've all been male. But um and usually my response is, well, you need a different lawyer mm -hmm. because my approach is just not to be um, yeah, a bulldog. I don't grab onto things and latch on and, and not, you know, my, my approach is to be reasonable and help my clients have the best chance for success. And I think that's the route to do it. But if you, there are lawyers out there who I think um, might be happy to take that role mm -hmm. um, or to handle that type of a client and to, to satisfy that type of a client, what they're mm -hmm. really looking for. So mm -hmm. that could be certainly something that you ask. If you know for sure you, you definitely want to go right to court, you should definitely ask the lawyer, um, you know, find out how they feel about going to court and if they're comfortable doing it and if they're, they're happy doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. That was actually a question I was going to ask because I, I, that comes up for me once in a while. Somebody's looking for a really tough, really mean lawyer because they, they know that they need a very strong advocate in their situation. And my experience with that is that lawyers work across from another lawyer all the time. They're very familiar with the lawyers in the city and different personality types and style types and are happy to recommend certain types of lawyers 
for what people are looking for. Have you guys had that scenario pop up where somebody's asked you for a certain type of lawyer and you just make that referral or how does that go? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I think like Evan, I uh, maybe even more so I'm pretty clear in my consults of what style of lawyer I am. Um, so um, if people are looking for someone who is kind of that bulldog or on the shark end of things, they're not going to find that in me. And we're we're going to end up not happy <laughs> with one another. We're not going to have a happy professional relationship. So often I will um, provide some referrals in, in that case um, to either a bigger firm that might have um, more lawyers to choose from or, or just give them some names of somewhere else they might want to go. Yeah, I think it's also helpful to clarify that suits generally um, break their, their code of conduct like every single episode. So like being what we call sharp practice, right? We're not allowed to do that. That's, yeah. um, that's a problem. So we have a responsibility to always act ethically and fair and act, and we are officers of the court. So we can't deliberately do things we know would mislead the court and we can't lead uh, evidence that is misleading that way. It's really, there's a fine line between um, following our code of conduct and acting ethically as a lawyer, our professional responsibility and advocating for our clients. We can't advocate for our clients in a way that would um, conflict with our responsibilities to the profession. So um, I think most, I think any lawyer who's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna, you want a Harvey Specter? <laughs> Like most, I definitely, I love Harvey. Mm. I kind of have a man crush on Harvey. He's great. He's got great <laughs> hair, especially in the earlier episodes. He's a man. Mm. He's also alone. Right? He's got no family. Well, no. <laughs> Anyways. But he, he is not a lawyer that I would want to be like because, uh, to be quite frank, he, he should have been disbarred long ago. Yeah, many, many times over, probably. I, Even yeah. before he hired Mike as a lawyer. <laughs> Definitely a horrible offense. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I just, I just wanted to say, lawyers aren't really allowed to be bulldogs in that way where they're going to be unreasonably aggressive just to take it to the other side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe that's even a point for education too then for that person, right? Um, hopefully they're going to go in and interview a few different people and hopefully somewhere along the way a lawyer is going to tell them what the benefits and the cons of taking that kind of approach to their file is. I mean, ultimately those kinds of things cost a lot of money. They take a lot of time. Um, and they take an emotional and psychological toll. So even if you're on the aggressive side and you're the one that's always biting, you're still engaging in that conflict for a longer period of your life. You're, you're paying your lawyer for every minute that they're spending on your file to, like you said, Evan, stick it to the other side. So at the outset, that might be the feeling. Um, that may not actually be practical, a practical goal in the long run. So yeah. Think about where you want to end up, where you want your bank account to end up at the end of, of all of this, right? Yeah. And I, I look, I think uh, I share an experience that I, of a file that I worked on where a client, um, just to give an idea of like, sometimes uh, like you don't need to be, have an aggressive or unprofessional approach in order to have success. Again, the facts really dictate um, and in this particular situation, I had a client who um, the other parent had not paid child support, but my client was a primary parent for years and years and had not paid enough. And in the end, those facts worked in my client's favor so that my client was able to, without going to court, the other side, the other parent got a lawyer and that lawyer had a hard conversation with their client and my client got a consent order um, setting arrears at amount that's probably less than it could have been if it went to court but was certainly fair and my client was happy with it 
mm-hmm. and got an ongoing uh, child support um, amount that was within the guidelines. And my client was very happy with that because before we started that, she was not getting that. Um, so you can get results, but a lot of it's really going to depend on the facts of the case, not so much, not nearly as much, I think, on the lawyer. What is a consent order? A consent order is an order of the court where both parties agree to the content of the order. Um, And that is a very economical way to resolve things. You can go and get an order proclaimed by the judge, but you can also go and agree. There's our guideline income. We're going to pay this amount of child support. I'm going to pay this much of child support to the other person. Let's get that in an order. And the benefit to that is now there's certainty because that order is law. So on the Bar Association website, is there a place on there that gives a list of questions that somebody would want to ask a lawyer just to be prepared for that initial meeting? Is there a place for this? That we now, I just wanted to clarify, you said Bar Association. We have the Canadian Bar Association. Yeah. That's not a regulator. Okay. A regulator is the Law Society of Alberta. Okay. So, so the Law Society makes sure you guys follow the rules and the Bar Association gives you guys your credentials and your designations and tracks your learning or how does that work? No, that all, it's, the Law Society is the one that, um, yeah, they track the rules, make sure we're following them, but they also have a referral service. The Bar Association is just um, it's an association of lawyers that uh, it's not mandatory and they more or less it's we we educate each other. We have seminars weekly and stuff like that. So the Bar Association is kind of for lawyers in our profession, whereas the Law Society is, the their responsibility is to make sure that lawyers are serving the public in the way that's appropriate. And they have a referral service. Um, you can find a lawyer by going on their website. Um, I don't know, what other client-facing services do they have, Heather? Um, I mean, they're the people, are they're the society through which people make complaints about lawyers. Um, and you can look up a lawyer's year of call, their address. And I think that the Law Society is now publishing whether they have any disciplinary history. Um, so that is something that you can look up there. Yeah, thank you for, for sorting that out, Evan, because that was going to be my next question. How do you find out if somebody's, uh, you know, one of the bad guys and, and, and not following the rules? And it sounds like we got to go to the legal society, not the bar association. And I did not know that. So that's a, that's a really important distinction. So people hit the right uh, places when they're on the Internet. Okay, well, that pretty much wraps up a lot of the things that were sort of the hot topics on my mind. I think to your point, Heather, the, the, the referral scenario seems like the most common in most professions where, where you look for a buddy who's maybe had a divorce. Did they have a good experience? Um, asking around is, is great. You can go to the legal society for the referral, uh, pop around on different websites and, um, hopefully with, uh, a set of questions you can hone in on what it is that you're looking for so my final bit is how do we know what to ask the lawyer <laughs> um well i mean i think you would make sure you leave the meeting you probably want to know how much they cost that's going to be a big a big thing and how um how your build so what's that going to look like um, what the next steps are for continuing the relationship. So um, how do you hire them if you do have a good consult and, and you like them? Um, I guess, yeah, those two things I would ask for sure. And that communication policy, Evan, you had referred to outside of our podcast here. Yeah, I think it's important to to find out how can you expect your communications to go with the lawyer because um, some lawyers may communicate directly with their clients. Um, others may do it primarily through assistance, mm-hmm. uh, other people at the employed by the law firm. And so it's good to know. It's good to know how that works. And the number one, one of, I think it's the number one complaint the law society gets is communication problems, lawyer not responding to the client. Um, and so getting a sense for how 
the lawyer, like what their policy is and, and what their systems are for pushing information out to their clients or dealing with requests for information from their clients. I think that's something that's useful to ask. And I think it can be hard to ask those questions about how do you bill and what's your policy for communicating with your clients. Those can be kind of hard because you kind of like just want to assume you don't want to insult their professionalism, mm. but I would say no. It's your money. If you're, if they're going to be asking for a retainer. You should know those things. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you know, you might not always get a useful answer to that question that actually helps you get a sense for what it's going to be like. Unfortunately, sometimes you may. The only way to find out is through experience. But um, it, it's definitely something to ask. And if they have a if they have a system in place for making sure clients get information in a timely way, they will happily talk about it mm -hmm. because it's something they will have thought about, planned, yeah. and think is a good thing. Right. Um, so I, I would I would ask something about that. Um, That's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I sort of hijacked this uh, podcast today. You guys are the hosts. I'm the guest. But um, I think I think. Um, I was the one who had the most questions about this process. So thank you to so, so much for answering all of these uh, questions with regards to how to shop for a lawyer. And I think people will find this very valuable. I know I have, and um, I'll, I'll let you guys uh, wrap up this, this, uh, this meeting here. Is there anything else you guys wanted to add? I just want to say thanks for tuning in and listening and don't shoot the messenger just because you go to a consult and you might get some bad news from a lawyer. That actually might be a good sign that you're getting someone who can have a frank conversation with you and is going to tell you the reality of your situation. So um, I, that's my parting note on this on this topic. Thanks yeah. so much for your questions today, Kim. I think it's been super helpful to guide our conversation. Yeah, Kim, you're you're a great guest, the best guest we've had on the podcast. Super engaged. Flash, yeah. Flash video. The, the only guest so far, but we, I guess we look forward to having more uh, more people pop in, give different perspectives, ask different styles of questions, and get to the bottom of things. So, can't wait, can't wait for the next one, you two. Same here. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallory Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Stole my heart from my lips. That was it.